there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. Are you interested in learning more about what it's like to work as a civilian in the U.S. military? Then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a financial planning and analysis professional with the U.S. Navy, where he works on a team to manage multi-billion dollar budgets to keep America's Navy first in class. But before I introduce you to Brett Bergen, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Brett Bergen, a financial planning and analysis professional for the U.S. Navy, specifically the Navy Sea Systems Command, also known as NAVC. When Brett joined the Navy in 2010 as a civilian business financial manager or government acquisition professional, he was responsible for working with a technical and business leadership team in the financial planning, analysis, and execution of a multi-billion dollar budget for U.S. Navy acquisition programs across multiple fiscal years. Since the end of 2019, Brett has been a financial planning and analysis professional working with a team to manage multi-billion dollar budgets for the U.S. Navy's radars, electronic warfare, and lasers to keep America's Navy number one in the world. Brett also spends about a week each fall recruiting students at his alma mater at Penn State, and they're recruited from almost every major in GPA for thousands of civilian positions that support exciting U.S. Navy programs all across the U.S., In addition, Brett channels his passion for education into an organization that he founded in 2015 called the Wise Man Institute. And to date, the course he's created has taught over 5,000 students in over 120 countries how to crush their high school, college, and graduate classes. And in the fall of 2020, Brett will be launching a brand new training called Megamind, which is a complete guide to acing online classes. You can get more details at getmegamind.com. And we're going to be digging into Megamind toward the end of this interview. So if you're taking any online classes now, or if you will be taking any online classes in coming days and weeks, you are definitely going to want to stay tuned to learn more about this training because here is a super shocking statistic. According to a study of 230,000 students by the Brookings Institution, and that is a think tank based in Washington, D.C., Students who take online courses can expect to see their grades slip, and not only in their first semester, but in the next semester too, which makes them more likely to drop out. So you are absolutely going to want to learn how 
to stay engaged online and how to make the most out of your online courses. And again, we're going to get into that a little bit later in this interview. But first, Brett, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Thanks so much, Andrea. I am caffeinated and I am ready. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for that introduction. Oh my goodness, my pleasure. So what is your caffeinated beverage of choice these days? So Cafe Bastello, kind of like a Cuban coffee, an espresso mix. I have that and I make about six cups and I mix that with like a protein nut milk. And I mix that also with organic maple syrup, which is a little trick that I learned while I was skiing in Canada several years ago. I, I thought it was crazy at first. And then I actually had a latte with soy, you know, coffee and maple syrup. And oh my God, it blew my mind. And I've been drinking it every morning ever since. Mm, delicious. Now, wait a second. Are you drinking six cups a day? In the morning. Yep. At least six cups, you know, in terms of the coffee maker's measurement. I have no idea how many ounces that actually is. I, okay. I think it's quite a few. Okay. Holy cow. I think you've got me topped. <laughs> You're drinking that much every day, but you are definitely wired and ready to go for sure. And I know, Brett, before we get into the meat of this interview, we need to quickly mention up front that what you're saying during this interview is not as an official representative of the US government, right? These are all only your opinions. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks for mentioning that. That's one thing, you know, as a federal government employee, ethics is is tied into everything that we do. And it's really important that we don't use our position for personal gain in any way. And we have to make these disclaimers up front. Okay. A hundred percent understood. And in a few minutes, I'm going to want to talk with you about what you're doing in your current job as a financial planning and analysis professional with the Navy, where you've worked for about 10 years, a little over 10 years. But considering that we are just a few weeks away from the start of the new school year, I thought maybe we could kick things off by having you pretend that you are back at Penn State where you go every fall to recruit for the U.S. Navy's civilian workforce and maybe just get a preview of what you say at these job fairs because you go to Penn State, but Time for Coffee listeners are all over the U.S. and all around the world. Why should our young listeners, especially American listeners, consider a civilian career in the U.S. Navy? Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. So I'll tell you what I typically tell students when they approach the booth. You know, I let them know that this is Naval Sea Systems Command. We are not a company. We're actually part of the U.S. government. And if you think about it, the Navy has, you know, all these sailors that are out on ships and they're, they're manning the ships and the systems that are on them. But how do they get there? And so what we do is we're the Navy's largest command responsible for budgeting and acquiring and fielding and maintaining all of the Navy's ships and ship systems that we actually put into service. And so there's a whole bunch of us. We're civilians. We're military. We also have contractor partners like people in Lockheed Martin, Booz Allen, Hamilton, Raytheon, all those folks. And we are the ones that are designed, delivering, and maintaining all of those things for the U.S. Navy. So it's really exciting, you know, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, that mission. We're not in it for profits. We get a budget from the U.S. Congress to do a very specific task in every one of 150-plus programs that we have. You can work all across the country and in some places around the world, like Japan and Spain. We have 
over 30 activities across 16 states in the U.S., you know, up and down the East Coast, the West Coast, the Gulf, even Crane, Indiana. So people, listeners all around the country, they might not even have to leave their home state to work for the Navy. You also don't have to join the Navy. You're not going to be part of the military when, when you work for NAVC. You're just a civilian like a normal, a normal job. Yet you get kind of get all the benefits of joining the military in that you get to work on something really cool with a wonderful mission. And so the next thing I tell students is about the jobs that we have. And that's what they want to know. They're like, hey, you know, I'm a liberal arts major. Is there something for me? Or I'm an engineer. Is there something for me? And there really is something for everybody. So we're primarily an engineering command, but we hire from a variety of majors, really pretty much any major to fulfill one of a number of our back office positions. When I say back office positions, you don't just go into a windowless room you know, <laughs> that no one ever sees. Right. You are still on the front lines working with the engineers, our commanders and captains every day through either the project management team or a budget team, contracts, legal, HR, all of it. It's all an essential part of what we do. So there's really something for everyone. And if they are an engineer, and if you are an engineer listening, I'd say this is really an exciting opportunity for you, no matter where your GPA falls, even if you have a 2.0, and you're really a hands-on kind of person. You could get a job at a shipyard or in supervisor shipbuilding. You can be out there. You can be repairing ships. You can be refurbishing them. You can be installing really exciting new technology that you got to keep secret. Or you know maybe you're more into advanced research. You can be at a white lab coat kind of lab, working on all kinds of neat things that again you can't tell anybody about, or you know some things that you can. It's just there's really something for everyone, and it's really really fun. And typically, Brett, how many open positions are there usually for recent college graduates, for those entry-level jobs? So when I first started recruiting, which was several years ago, we had maybe 60,000 people at NAPSI, which is still a lot. And every year, we've been growing. I think now we're up to, say, 83,000 people. At the same time we've been growing, a lot of our staff has been at or approaching retirement age for quite some time and have been retiring pretty quickly. So on the one hand, we're growing. And on the other hand, we're filling all of these spots. So that first year I started recruiting, we, we were looking for a few hundred positions, which is still dramatically more than most companies that you're talking to at a career fair. Oh, yeah. Last year, we were looking just, just through our representatives on the East Coast, didn't even represent the whole command. We were looking to hire 2,000 students across all the career fields. Unbelievable. You know, students' minds absolutely explode when they hear that. They're like, oh, wow, there's definitely an opportunity here. I should, I should totally throw my name in the hat. And they absolutely should. And the other thing I get excited talking to students about is how a day in the life and the work-life balance here, you know, really differs from private industry, where, for instance, an engineer coming right out of college, they might be offered 70K and they're going to be put maybe some random field activity in the middle of the country, or even if it's in a major city, they're going to be working maybe 12 hours a day, several days a week, maybe one day off, if any. And they're going to be doing that for years. Work-life balance is going to be more like work-life integration. And you know, for us, you're expected to put in 40 hours a week, sometimes a little bit more, but you can get credit hours for it. And you have an opportunity to work alternative work schedule which means you can work an extra hour a day for eight out of 10 days in the cycle than a normal eight hour day, and then one day off 
every other week. And so as we're talking, I'm actually teleworking from the beach in the Jersey Shore. And every other Friday, actually today, is a Friday that I have off. And so this is me talking to you, still working towards what I you know, really believe in, which is putting out the NAVC message and getting students interested. And of course, also talking to students about the Megamind class that I'm launching soon. Incredible. And just to clarify something, when you were describing at the beginning of this last answer that you gave, somebody who's working three days a week, 12 hours a day, you were talking about somebody who, an engineer who might have gone into the private sector. Right. Well, a nurse might work three days a week, 12 hours a day, but an engineer in the private sector, I'm often told by my my friends in private industry and engineers and by students that they're being expected to work 12 hours a day or so for six days a week. Oh, God. And they're you know maybe getting paid 70K. And here at NAVC, they can get a great engineering job working normal five days a week, or if they're on an alternative work schedule, five days one week, four days another. You know, and a lot of consulting companies, especially for young people, they are just thrown to the fire, burned out. They are asked unofficially, officially <laughs> to work overtime and not get any payment or credit for it. I still have a friend who does consulting in New York City, and she must put in 80 to 100 hours a week, but she only gets paid for 40 hours a week. And it's terrible. She has these golden handcuffs. She feels like she can't quit. So you've already mentioned the benefits of working at NAVC in the Navy in terms of the flex schedule. Obviously, now during the coronavirus, we're doing this interview in the middle of July. Pretty much everybody is working remotely. But what are some of the lesser known benefits, Brett, of working for the federal government and maybe that are even unique to the Navy? So hands down, one of the things that really sets us apart is the mission, the meaningfulness of what we do every day. And for a lot of college grads, that might not be on their mind as much. When they're first coming out of college, they might have had just typical jobs or, or internships that just gave them a little bit of a taste of work. But when you're working every single day, all day, every day for years, you really want to have meaning in your life. And if you're just doing you know, a mundane job for a private company, or you're just trying to increase earnings per share for, for shareholders just a, a little bit more, a couple extra cents this quarter, it's not really as meaningful as you're working on the fleet, you're getting intelligence briefings, you're working with commanders and captains on the daily, you are literally working to secure the country, keep America's Navy number one in the world. It is just really exciting every single day. You know, in addition to that, the federal government is one of the only places left where you have a pension at the end of the rainbow. After about 20 years, that's about how long it takes before you really get a, a meaningful pension. And you can retire as early as I think it's now currently 55. So that's nuts. And also just the 20 year mark, I can kind of technically retire <laughs> 10 years from now. It's you know, at the age of maybe 43 mm. and you have 20 years in, but not put in the paperwork, I guess, until I'm 55 and start drawing then. So that's really interesting. The pension is really worth a lot. And in addition to that, we have something called the Thrift Savings Plan, which is a government, essentially a government 401k, and they match up to 5%. 
Brett, something else that you mentioned in our Espresso Shots interview, and if our listeners want to learn more about how to break into NABC and into the Navy on the civilian side, check out show notes to see if Brett's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. But something you mentioned that really did blow my mind was on the academic side, if somebody wants to get an advanced degree, could you just give us a quick summary? of what the Navy does, of what the federal government does, if you're interested in getting another degree? Absolutely. So it isn't a sure bet for every federal government office that you join. But at the Navy, there's this general recognition that what we do is extremely complex. And we're dealing with very, very expensive programs with a lot of scrutiny from Congress and the public. And so higher education is really highly valued. And people are really encouraged to get a graduate degree. They're not required. You absolutely don't have to get a master's before you join. You can totally just come out of college and be fine. And I'd even encourage you to not get a graduate degree unless you're getting a PhD in in some specialization that you want to apply for applied research. But to even just delay that graduate degree until after you've joined NAFC because the government will typically kick in to pay for all or part of your degree. And I actually got a master's from Columbia University in applied analytics through an online hybrid program. So part on campus, part live online classes that was fully funded by Naval Sea Systems Command. It was not guaranteed every single semester. So I had to apply every semester for the funding. But as long as it's there and it was, it was funded. And so here I am, you know, the government has fully funded this wonderful degree and I've been able to to take it and apply it directly to my job and to help advise the Navy long-term for its digital strategy since it's applied analytics and data science. Amazing. Yeah, it's great. And we also have scholarships for students who are still a little younger in the college process, maybe freshmen, sophomore, even juniors. There's this scholarship called the SMART Scholarship. And if you get in this program, the Navy will pay up to, at least right now, it's like $25,000, I believe, per year towards your or more actually, towards your tuition. You just have to cover meals and expenses like that and lodging. And they'll give you another $25,000 to $38,000 a year in cash stipend. And you get guaranteed internships and you get a guaranteed job out as long as you meet the program requirements. It is unbelievable. So let's say you did this all four years. You You somehow got in fall freshman year. You could come out with zero college debt and over $100,000 in your pocket to you know, walk out as a 21-year-old with a guaranteed job with Naval Sea Systems Command. Unbelievable. Yeah, totally unbelievable. Incredible. We will include a link to that SMART program <laughs> so that if any of our listeners want to apply or learn more about it, they can check it out. Brett, I usually ask this question a little bit later in my interviews, but because it is directly relevant to how you ended up working for NAVC, where you've worked now for 10 years, I'm going to ask you now, when you were at Penn State at the Schreyer Honors College in an accelerated business program, getting your Bachelor of Science degrees, by the way, he got two of them, summa cum laude, I might add as a double major in finance and industrial psychology. Did you know what you were going to do with those degrees when you graduated? 
So I had an idea. <laughs> so the idea was I'm studying finance and industrial psychology, which is industrial psychology is like management consulting in a way. So the idea was manage numbers, manage people. And my first choice was to work on Wall Street. And I thought that that's where I should go. That's the pinnacle of finance majors career. So, you know, I'm going to compete for it. But then the Great Recession happened. And that threw all of my plans to the wayside. And the other thing too, when you're in college, you're kind of in this little bubble. You think that there are only several types of jobs for the degree that you're getting. And you know, in finance, I thought, well, if it wasn't Wall Street investment banking, it was maybe corporate finance with a company like Johnson & Johnson in Newark, New Jersey, or it was corporate risk management, which I just do not like. And I didn't really know that there is every kind of job under the sun out there. So I really had no clue what was in store for me. And so I just kept my mind open, went on the university's job site, and just kept applying for all of these different things. And one of those things was actually the, this job that I'm in now with Naval Space Systems Command. I didn't give it too much thought. I just saw that they were open to finance majors. I threw my name in the hat. And when I got a callback for an interview, I looked at it a bit more and was totally bewildered. I'm like, wait, I thought you have to join the Navy for this kind of thing. <laughs> and, and that's where one of the moments that helped my mind just completely open to the fact that there are so many different kinds of jobs out there for every single type of major out there. And once I joined, I saw that even non-finance majors, non-accounting majors were also business financial managers. They had at least 24 business credits, but they were maybe a history major or political science major and just really interested in this stuff and just learned on the job how to do the financial activities that we do. So that's my story there. Yeah. You mentioned the Great Recession. So was this 2008 or 2009? So 2009 is when I graduated. 2008 is when yes. really everything was collapsing. Exactly. Yeah, it was a really hard time. We kind of find ourselves in a similar situation today. Well, exactly. And that's what I want to ask you about. Having lived through that as a millennial and as somebody who graduated into a recession. For our young listeners, maybe those who've just graduated in 2020, those who are going to be graduating in 2021 or even at the end of 2020, what advice do you have for them, Brett, based on your experience? I would say never give up. There might be a limited amount of jobs open on maybe your university's career site or just job sites in general. Never give up. Use relationships as your primary source for finding internships and jobs if you're graduating soon. And don't overlook relationships with your professors, with other staff at the university that, that you've gotten on good terms with, visiting alumni, other distinguished speakers that come to the university. These are all people that know folks out there that have jobs and they're looking for maybe a little bit more than just a good resume. They're looking for a personal reference and getting that personal reference could put your resume on top of the pile or even just cut you right through the process, right into an interview. And that's what I did when I graduated. And I got 26 interviews, but it was really discouraging because I kept hearing that, hey, we really like you and really wish we can hire you and we're going to keep your name on our list. But right now it's just not 
the best time because of the uncertain economic environment. But if you just keep telling yourself, remember, it only takes one yes. That's all it takes, just one offer for something that you interviewed with, something that you want. That is, that is all it took for me to get my foot in the door with Naval Sea Systems Command. And it's led to a very successful and fulfilling career. Yeah. And it may not be in the field that you thought it would be in. So keep an open mind. Absolutely. That is the moral of the story. Keep an open mind. Keep Consider every interview a fresh opportunity. Don't think about the ones that didn't turn out previously. Don't get frustrated. Don't get discouraged. Just keep going. Yeah. And even if you do get discouraged, because I can totally see how frustrating I just, my heart goes out to all of you. It really does. And if and when you do get discouraged, give yourself a big hug, meditate, go for a run, do something, go for a walk with a friend, maybe a social distance walk or something like that. And then go back to the computer and start over again and keep plodding forward because you will find it. It just may not be where you thought it was. (laughs) That's really, I think, the message that we want to convey here. So, Brett, let's talk about what you're doing now. Your current title is financial planning and analysis, right? You're in that space. What does that mean you do? That's right. So, for the rest of the world, financial planning and analysis is you know, a common term. People are given in you know, private industry to understand what someone like me does. But in government space, we call it a business financial manager. And that is just this single title given to pretty much everyone in my field, regardless of what we do on the day-to-day. And my current job is kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Everything that a BFM does, a BFM, the business financial manager, everything that they do but also helping the team as as a whole, since I have 10 years experience in a variety of different offices and pretty good academic credentials. So I've been hired to this job kind of at a higher level just to kind of help smooth, or I should say, oil the gears for the whole machine to function throughout the team. But a typical business financial manager is going to start every day, checking emails, checking for priorities, uh, priority actions, any drills, and then They're going to be involved in the budgeting prep process, which we do three times a year where we're budgeting for our programs that get submitted to Congress. And so we're relying on Congress for our funding. But we also have funds that are already in the bank, and we are executing those at the same time that we're budgeting. And when I say executing, we're essentially sending or putting money on contracts to whatever contractors we're working with in order to bring our programs to life. And we're also just doing general financial reporting and if you've ever heard of, this is an older film, but it is a classic. Any listeners that have not seen it, that you, you absolutely have to see this movie, Office Space. I've never there. seen it. I've never even oh heard of God. it. Andrea, I cannot believe it. You have to watch Office Space. It is, it's a comedy, it's a satire about office life in, I think, basically like the 90s, but it still rings true for office life today in private industry. And there's even maybe some elements in, in government life there. But they talk about TPS reports. And there's there's just a lot of satire with TPS reports. But let me tell you, it is a real thing. Test planning sheets. And that's an essential thing that we do and something that I am involved with. And that's essentially breaking down our budget into discrete activities that they're kind of like little checklists of what we need to do 
in order to complete every step in the process that we told Congress that we would do in our budget. Mm-hmm. And I'm actively involved in helping write those, put them in the system, and also just do general TPS tracking. So those TPS reports are real. <laughs> and a lot of people, when you make a joke about it, you break the ice and they start laughing. They were saying, you know, they start to say, oh my God, I thought it was just me making this reference back to office space. And I tell my spouse, can you believe that we do TPSs at work like an office space? So <laughs> this might be an older, too old of a reference for some of the listeners to get, but TPS reports are real. So give us a sense, Brett, of a typical day. And would you say that there's a particular personality that really thrives in this kind of a job? So typical day, that, that's classified, Andrea. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so what we do on the day-to-day, pretty much just what I just described. Email is an essential part, keeping track of what's going on via email. And now our Microsoft Teams accounts, kind of like Slack in private industry, we're constantly monitoring chat. That's an essential part of every day because everything that we do involves input from somebody on the engineering and technical side, program managers, financial side, contract side. We're all constantly working as a team throughout the entire day to bring you know the football down the field towards that finish line, even on some of the smaller tasks. And so a typical day might start with, after you check your emails, and if there's nothing, no drills or anything to take urgent action on, we're working on those budgets with the team. We are working on financial reports for leadership and for internal management. And we're sending funding out to all the activities and putting on contract to get everything we need to moving and bring our programs to life. Oftentimes, what seems to be a predictable day-to-day is thrown for a spin in a good way, because you don't want things to be too predictable, and we get a drill. And oftentimes, it's based on something that just happened, like the Bone Home Richard having that fire. And now we're all being asked to identify funds, where we can pull funds for a drill that we have to turn around in four hours or a day or something like that, so we could come up with the money to make that repair. Or maybe there's a new presidential initiative or something that Congress just asks us to do where all of a sudden... In the morning, we see something that comes out asking us to pivot and make some changes in the program, which ultimately impact budget schedule and hopefully not performance, which is essentially quality of the technologies that we're working on, but that is in the trade space, to kind of reconfigure our programs on the fly, make changes based on national priorities. And that actually happens more often than you think. So it's really a great mix of predictability. And then also a little bit of unpredictability that keeps things interesting every day. So is another way of saying drill that these are like emergencies, small fires, no pun intended, but <laughs> that, that will just kind of come up out of the blue? Right. And oftentimes I'm watching the news and maybe it's on the weekend or in the evening and something happens that involves Navy. Maybe something happens in Iran or China or Russia or, or even you know, a, a ship that caught fire. And I comment you know, to my wife, hey, well, I, I guess that's going to be on the list for tomorrow. That's going to impact our work tomorrow. Sometimes you can get a preview based on the national news of what these drills might look like the next day. Yeah. So just quickly, what about the personality type that thrives in this type of environment. Right. So 
personality type that thrives, I'd say somebody that is a bit more task and detail oriented, but can still connect with people. But at the end of the day, there is a significant amount of military culture that has pervaded civilian life, which is almost like a formality. But once you get used to it, it's really just formal language and you can still have informal relationships with people. I never thought that I would be saying sir and ma'am because that's just, I wasn't raised to be that formal. (laughs) It was really a shocker to me. Everyone was saying, you know, yes, sir. I was being called sir in my early 20s. It threw me for sure. But what do you know, after a couple of years, I'd start to address people as sir, ma'am, commander, captain, and you speak less formally, but you are encouraged to speak truth to power. So the people that thrive are people that can adapt to that kind of environment and are even excited by it, that they recognize that what we're working on is serious stuff and you can't mess around. And we are being held accountable at very high level. So there's a lot of pressure to to get it right, to take things seriously, to give people respect, to have a very high level of integrity. I'd say there are more introverts than extroverts who I work with at headquarters because you have a lot of engineers and that typically tends to be the personality. But if you work in a shipyard, you might have more extroverts, more informal language, you know, people coming to work, not in a suit and tie, but maybe just jeans and a shirt. That's pretty common. I did a stint over in California, Port Wanimi, California, and that was the daily dress code. It was, you know, jeans and a jacket. The building didn't even have air conditioning because it was California, but it got chilly sometimes and people dressed real casually and for comfort, almost like a, a tech firm. So I'd say if you stick to those fundamentals of personality, of integrity, and really believing in the mission and giving people the respect they deserve and being pretty task and detail oriented, you, know, you can't slack off. There's a variety of other office cultures that you can work within based on your personality and interests, be it more in, more introverted or extroverted environment, more formal culture or more informal culture of dress. Well, speaking of interests, <laughs> as if it isn't challenging enough performing well in a demanding full-time job as you do, with the U.S. Navy. In 2015, Brett founded the Wise Man Institute, which shows students how to unleash their hidden talents through extraordinary training programs. How did you get this institute off the ground, Brett, while you had a full-time gig? And what course have you taught to date? So like a lot of other working professionals, People have still have hobbies outside of work, just like in school. And you know, for me, it's always been about learning optimization. I am a learning optimization junkie. I'm also a Java junkie, by the way. Oh. <laughs> so I just love sharing what I have to say with students. But because I have a full-time job, it was definitely more of a marathon than a sprint. And it took about a year to launch that first class in 2014 to 2015 area, working the evenings, working weekends after the job ended, and it was pretty tough. So the first class that I developed back in the day, online learning was just sort of, it wasn't as big of a trend as it was today. So I developed a course that shows students how to learn and remember virtually anything taught in the classroom and really crush their classes more for an in-person environment. But a lot's changed in the last several years. 
And the online learning trend has really exploded to the point of no return. And now because of the coronavirus pandemic, it's going to be the only option for a lot of students for at least the next one or two semesters. Even after the pandemic's over, many schools and universities have even said they're going to continue offering online classes as a major part of their overall educational strategy. And as we talked about in the very beginning of this, a lot of students studies show that almost all of them that take online classes do substantially worse compared to when learning in person. And as it turns out, teachers are not that great at creating engaging multimedia content, and students aren't that great at keeping their own schedule. So for the last several months, I've been preparing to launch a new online training by the end of the summer, maybe early fall, called Megamind. And students are going to learn the same powerful learning, memory, and productivity optimization techniques that I've been teaching but with a twist. And you could probably guess what that is. I've tailored them specifically for online classes. And I show students how to overcome all of the major challenges that are entirely unique to the online learning experience. And what I mean by that last part is that taking classes online is a huge test in mental discipline, way more than anyone really realizes. You're socially and physically isolated. You're less stimulated. You're frustrated by teachers who struggle to deliver engaging lessons online. I mean, they are not trained in this stuff. And you're more easily distracted by your home environment. Even just if you set up an office space in your room, you kind of associate your room with relaxing, with social media, with sleep. And just that association itself could be a little distracting, especially if you have annoying parents (laughs) who might interrupt. (laughs) Or roommates. (laughs) Or roommates. Or wonderful parents like you who are actually uh, serving hot meals to their kid in the middle of class at noon. So kudos. (laughs) Kudos to you. So in addition to that, your daily routine, student's daily routine that was once driven by the need to physically be somewhere by a certain time, which kind of just naturally added structure, tends to break down. And so does health and personal hygiene. And that all leads to just general fatigue and worse academic performance. And a lot of listeners might have already had a taste of this during the COVID-19 lockdowns. So this all has a significant impact on a student's ability to learn and focus, and it does for other students too. And if you thought working on team assignments was a pain before, it is much worse for online classes. So it turns out slackers are even better at pushing their work on you when they don't have to see you in person. Go figure. So I learned all of these lessons the hard way after taking several years of intensive online classes required by my job certification and another few years in a primarily online master's degree at Columbia University. And just like I did as an undergrad, I ultimately figured out that perfect formula to acing online classes and staying sane and healthy in the process. So that's what the training is all about and why it matters to students today. So if your listeners do want to check it out, the website just went live at getmegamind.com. And that first class, which is launching soon, has limited spots, but you can currently reserve a spot for free and get a copy of the syllabus too. Just keep in mind, most people use Google, but the site is so new that it doesn't even come up in search results yet, and it just launched. So remembering that link, getmegamind.com, is important if students want to register. Fair enough. Could you give us an example, Brett, of something they're going to learn in your course, just give us the high level, this is the problem, and here's how I help you solve it. Sure. So online teams, for example, that's something I just mentioned that is really tough. Online team assignments are typically a big part of online classes and are a very frustrating part of online classes because your grade is dependent upon how seriously other students are taking this assignment. And that online environment really does make schedules, 
routines, just general discipline breakdown for not just you, but for other students too. So I've kind of cracked that dynamic and understanding Tuckman's five stages of group formation, which is a, a formal theory, forming, storming, norming, all of those, all those things that some listeners may or may not have heard about. And you know, how do you essentially get from that forming phase to that performing phase and that fifth stage is adjourning, which I mentioned too, how to keep in touch with people. But really how you go from forming, storming, norming, and performing as quickly as possible because you want to get to that performance level. And you also want to make sure that people aren't slacking and that they are not putting all of their work on you. There are ways that students can learn and apply to make sure that everyone's engaged, that people aren't bumming their work off on you, and that you're actually going to come out with a great student assignment that you can turn in, get a great grade, don't stress about, and even continue to, to keep those connections outside of the group if you want to. Mm. What about the shitty professor problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> there are going to be some professors who are amazing and able to connect even over Zoom or whatever platform they're using. But it's really hard, even for those professors who were crushing it in the classroom, to bring it virtually. What is a bit of advice that you have for our young listeners who are struggling with sucky professors? So that that is in the first lesson of this new course, Megamind, which is how can you kind of set yourself up for success here? Because the quality of instruction really varies. Like you said, professors who are used to teaching in person and they vary from good to great, or they're just okay. And students can do just fine and, and compensate even if they're not that great. When those same professors move online, even if they were great teaching in person, it could completely go south. And also teacher to teacher, instructor to instructor, it varies on where they decide to post content on that online learning platform. Like Blackboard is a very common platform. And you have a lot of places to post. You can post in the syllabus, you can post in general announcements, there's chats, there's all over the place. And every professor uses it a bit differently. And sometimes they change it up during the semester. And they might post a critical message, or an email or something that completely changes either the deadline for an assignment, or the nature of an assignment. And all of that just causes an incredible amount of anxiety for online learning. I can tell you this from experience. It, it happened to me for years of these online classes, and many students would get it wrong. So one of the things I teach is how to compensate for that and how to always make sure that you are getting the right message, that you know what the, the right deadline is, that you know exactly what you need to do for each assignment, and that you don't fall victim to accidental fake news from students who panic and tell you, did you know this was due tonight? Did you know it was due tomorrow? Did you know that this was going to be on the exam? But they only got part of the message. And you can be the one instead saying, hey, actually, it was said here that this is going to be on the exam, but there was just a message put out here that just clarified that it will no longer be. So you can be that voice of reason that calms both yourself down <laughs> and your peers. Could you give us a little hint of how someone can do that? Sure. So it's almost it's almost self-evident how to do it. The first piece is just to be aware of it. So once you're aware of it, it's pretty clear how you can then go about compensating for it. 
And that's really it. Just making sure that you know that the professor may be posting in multiple places. So the first thing that you do is you want to make sure that all of your settings on your online portal are set to give you an email notification every time the professor posts something. And that is not the default for every element within the course. And then also be sure that you read that syllabus up front and that you understand where the professor identifies as the ultimate source of truth. If they say that the syllabus schedule is going to be the ultimate source of truth and nothing is official until it is updated on the syllabus, that is what you are going to want to hold them accountable to. Because sometimes even the professor makes a mistake. But if you know that they've identified a particular place as a source of truth, and then they catch you off guard by accident one day, just hold them accountable to what they said, and that problem will go away for you. Fantastic. (laughs) It sounds like what you're saying, some of what you're going to be teaching is the kinds of questions, of clarifying questions to ask up front and how to make sure that your kind of fail safes are there, like the settings for emails and other things like that, that with regards to how your teacher is going to teach, how your professor is going to teach, making sure that you don't get screwed. That's absolutely true. That's that's that first lesson I kind of lead in with some of the easier stuff to just get yourself acquainted with how online classes work and what are the things that typically throw students off their game and lead to points lost that really don't have to be. And so some easier content that we talk about first related to that in that first lesson. And then in the next six, the seventh is about the online teams. But in the five in between, there's a lot more out there too, just how to learn most efficiently and effectively. Everything from setting up the right environment that you you can learn effectively and fully focus within, the importance of setting up a good productive routine every day, just the importance of having a, a general schedule or at least anchors in your day to give you the semblance of a routine is absolutely critical for staying on task and staying focused. It's so easy to just kind of go by the seat of your pants and just stay in your pajamas all day. And you know, if you're a guy, not shave, or I guess if you're a girl, not shave too, <laughs> and just kind of fall into this bad hygiene trap, not just personal hygiene, but academic hygiene as well. And that can happen very quickly. And like I mentioned, a lot of students probably got a taste of that with the COVID-19 lockdowns. And so I'll also be talking about even just how to, what's the best way to take notes and prepare for these timed online exams, which really is a very different way to take notes and take exams than if you are taking them in class. Just the basic question that people ask all the time, hey, if my instructor is providing these PowerPoints before the class starts, do I really need to take notes? And so that's something that we answered definitively in the class. Fantastic, Brett. Well, we'll make sure to include a link in show notes to Get Megamind, the website, getmegamind.com. And I want to apologize for the helicopters that are flying (laughs) over right now. Who knows if they're Navy helicopters, but whatever they are, this is life in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Brett, I want to just pivot now to two final Time for Coffee questions. These are questions I try to ask all of my guests. And one of them has to do with if you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled. Maybe you even failed at something as I have. And frankly, I ask that question because I want our young listeners to hear that 
often when you fail, there are so many amazing lessons that come out of that and opportunities that come out of that. But most importantly, how you persevered and perhaps a lesson you learned along the way. Yeah, I absolutely had a pretty major low at one point during my career. So I was on the job for about a year, my current job. And for the first three years, we're in a probationary period, which means that any given point, HR management could snap their fingers and we're laid off. And so you're very vulnerable for those first couple of years in that rotation. You really have to bring your A game all the time. And in one of my rotations, I was rotating up with our contracts department. And my first day there, an older, older lady greeted me and she told me that no one's going to help me. No one will supervise me, but she wants me to do exactly what she says. So I do what she says, but I'm not responsible to anybody. It was very confusing. And then she told me the stories are true, that she's a Nazi. So I was a little bit taken back by this and realized that this was going to be a pretty terrible assignment. And honestly, it almost cost me my job because of the way that she treated me. So one thing that she did, among many, she asked me one week to just make photocopies of binders for about eight hours a day for an entire week. And I did it without complaining. I really, like I said, I was worried about just making it through my rotations. This was only going to be a two-month rotation and, and just move on and go from there. But the thing is, I did want to learn. I really wanted to learn and understand everything that I needed to from that rotation. That's the whole reason I was there. So we actually had a college intern in the office that was given real contracts work. And I was a full-time hire, only had a little bit of time to learn about the contracts department before moving on to another rotation. So the next week, this woman asked me to do a whole other week of copying, just the same. And it was clear that she was going to make me do this until the end, just eight hours of copying every day, using me like a, a little mule. And this is, by the way, not typical of a work rotation anywhere. So this was very unique here. So when she brought this up, you know, I politely asked if maybe we could have that college intern do the copying since they're only here for a summer, they're in college, and I can take over their contracts work. So in other words, I wanted to contribute more. I wanted to learn. I wasn't saying no. I was just asking. So I didn't know it. But she then went behind my back telling everyone in my office, including my my home port supervisor, which is where I was originally stationed and ultimately where I was supposed to end up, that copying was beneath me and that I was insubordinate. So I had to do damage control. I barely hung on to my job. And apparently that rumor spread far and wide because two years later when all my rotations ended and I was interviewing for my final permanent position, my future boss asked me about that incident. And I did not want anything to, to screw up my possibility of, of staying at NAVSI because I really loved it there. So I thought of everything I could possibly be asked, and I was prepared for that question. Unfortunately, I nailed the interview and went on to have a successful career. So moral of the story there is that even with horrible experiences like that, where you feel vulnerable, you feel like others have power over you, and they are actively using it to undermine you, you can get out of it. And for me, that was just a blip. I really thought my life was over. I had bills to pay. I, I had a rent that I just signed for another 12 months. And here I was, I wasn't sure if I was going to be laid off because of this woman sabotaging me. But you just got to keep your head in the game and you can overcome it. And for me, that was just one little blip 10 years ago. 
and means nothing now. Wow. So I have to ask you, what did you say when your future supervisor asked you if that was true or what had happened? I pretty much just said one or two sentences. And I knew that because this woman had about three or four decades experience and she had all these relationships, it was really he said, she said, right? So the default was they were going to trust the experienced career professional and they would not trust me. And I also knew that this rumor by this point was several points removed, so they might not know the exact details. They just heard that I was maybe not the best rotational intern with them. I factored all of this in, in preparing what I was going to say if I was asked about this. And so all I said, the magic words, essentially said that a few years ago, I was just kind of getting acquainted with culture and went through a little bit of a rough patch. But since then, I've completely assimilated and have just been firing on all cylinders ever since. And that's all I needed to say. I didn't debate what happened. I didn't go into details. I didn't try to make it about he said, she said. I didn't even admit to wrongdoing or anything. I just kind of indirectly said that it was a challenge in the beginning, just getting acquainted with the culture and eventually figured it out. And that was it. Wow. You have a lot more self-restraint and diplomacy than I do. <laughs> Final T for C question. If you could go back to Penn State, Brett, and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Well, Andrea, I think we can do a whole other podcast just about this, <laughs> but I'll keep it to my, my top three, unless that's too many. And I also have a final message. So I'd say first, I wish someone just told me to skip all of my classes during university career fairs. Because companies tend to hire in short windows during predictable times of the year, and they do that to save on recruiting costs. So it's really important to get them at the right time. So for college students seeking internships and full-time positions, this is most often during your fall career days. And I can't tell you how many students that, you know, before the career days, you know, I usually get to campus a little early. I talk to them. I say, hey, are you going to be in the career fair? You know, if I just see them in, in a Starbucks or something like that. And they say, oh, man, well, I have a class. And it's just, it hurts me when they say that because they don't realize, they're not remembering that one of the biggest reasons for their degrees is not to just get that grade to get that degree, but actually use it as a stepping stone into your first job. And they're not aware that so many companies and organizations today use those fall career days as their giant hiring time. So it's really important to be aware of that and to make whatever accommodations you need to uh, ideally asking your professors in advance to take a couple hours and go to those career fairs. And so if you can't make those fall career days, there's also some hiring done in the spring and spring career days. And honestly, I really just think there's only limited hiring off season anymore. It's just really efficient for employers to go to these fall career days and hire a ton of people. And even if you've already graduated and you're an alumni and you want to change it up, Maybe you have a job, maybe you don't, but you want to find a new one. You can go back for those fall career days, spring career days at your alma mater and put yourself out there. I would just recommend mentioning that you've graduated already, but it's completely fine. I've talked to graduates, I've even talked to people that didn't go to Penn State, but they were there anyway. And that's totally not against the rules. Penn State did allow people from local campuses to come. And so keep that in mind too, even if your college or university doesn't have a really big events, there might be other ones from other bigger universities around you that you can go to. 
So another big word of wisdom, I'd say resumes and connections get you to an interview. And once you're there, recruiters typically just want to assess you as a person and sometimes test your problem-solving skills. And whomever interviews better will likely get that job, even if they don't have the best resume out of those who compete. And then third, I'd say always build bridges with people around you. I mentioned this earlier too. If you develop good relationships with your professors, other alumni, distinguished guests at college events, they're all potential doors to a good job. And so are family, friends. And also, this is not something that everyone recognizes, is that after several years out of college, your former classmates are moving along in their own careers. And they could be connections too to get your resume at the top of the pile or just get you right into an interview. And so my final word of wisdom here, if I had to go back and tell myself during the Great Recession, never give up. Keep an open mind about those opportunities that you never considered. Give every opportunity your best to. And part of my experience during that time, I applied to hundreds of jobs, went on those 26 interviews. I even walked around New York City knocking on doors until my feet actually bled. And all it took was one offer in the place I least expected for me to launch a great career. Oh, what a fantastic way to end, Brett. If you want to learn more about Brett's brand new course to help you ace those online courses, check out GetMegamind.com. Brett, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today. I hope it wasn't the full five or six cops with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was just wonderful. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.